Well, you're about to listen to the conversation that Daniel and I have just had with Tim O'Neill, the author of the blog History for Atheists, who um, also now has a YouTube channel and podcast. It's well worth your time checking these things out. So uh, make sure you check the link in the description for um, for, for, for Tim and, and all of his stuff. But um, this conversation is fascinating as we explore um, what people believe, especially what atheists believe or at least espouse their belief in and what it's actually based in. So the actual historical facts and realities are Upon the claims that atheists sometimes make, um, as well as Christians. So this is a really um, two-sided conversation because we essentially explore um, what is or is not enough evidence to make a claim and how we can begin to explore and read and understand the different um, facets and facts that, that you can base a claim within. So um, yeah, Tim's got a great voice in this space. He has a, um, a fantastic way of um, pushing atheists to understand um, what is and isn't true in the classic atheist retorts. So um, thinking things like Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, um, and some of their claims that, for instance, Christianity has no value whatsoever and it is a poison. Um, and Tim pushes back against this, um, which you might like, you might not like. That doesn't really matter. What I find interesting is the reasons behind why Tim does or does not push against certain things. So this is a great conversation. I've got so much time for Tim. Um, I think you'll hear in this conversation that we both share a, a passion for um, history, especially the Bible and early church history and trying to understand why certain people believe certain propositions that spun Christianity into existence. So yeah, enjoy this. And as always, don't forget to like, subscribe and hit that notification bell. And yeah, enjoy this conversation. Cheers. Welcome to When Belief Dies, a podcast honestly reflecting on faith religion and life. This podcast is all about listening. We want people to share their reasons for faith or their reasons for non-belief so that we can better understand what has or has not convinced somebody of the claims that different religions profess. This is a journey, it's not a destination, and I'm really excited to have you listening with us each week as we delve into different viewpoints from different parts of the world to try and uncover the truth. Enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to When Belief Dies. Uh, my name's Daniel. I'm joined today with our regular host, Sam. Sam, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing well, buddy. Yeah, how are you? Yeah, doing well. I wish uh, summer was coming sooner, but apart from that, um, it's all good. Uh, and we're also delighted to be joined um, by Tim O'Neill from History for Atheists. And Tim, uh, good morning, obviously, out there in Australia. How are you doing? I'm very well. It's uh, nice, nice and bright and early. I can hear the birds starting to wake up. Fantastic. Grand. Well, Tim, uh, you are obviously the host of the History for Atheists YouTube channel and uh, also the blog as well. And it'd be really interesting just to learn a little bit more about you as a person. Um, uh, obviously, it's history for atheists. Are you an atheist? Have you always been uh, an atheist or have you um, sort of had some sort of religious upbringing yourself? Yeah. Um, well, thanks, guys, and thanks for having me on the, on the show. Um, yeah, I, I am an atheist, contrary to uh, certain rumours. 
that uh, that some people have been spreading about me. Uh, some people don't like some of the stuff I say, and so they they try to claim that I'm actually a Christian pretending to be an atheist and so on. Um, I'm not. I, I, I have no belief in any god or gods, and haven't uh, for many years now. Um, uh, so yeah, I've effectively been an atheist since my late teens. Uh, I was uh, raised in a, in a, in a Christian um, household. Um, I wasn't a very fanatical believer in, in my teens. I, I kind of believed it, but um, mainly when it was uh, when it was convenient, when it was inconvenient, I kind of forgot about being a Christian. Um, and then uh, I suppose I kind of got to doing a lot more reading about uh, about history, actually. And it was it was really the study of history that led me to question my beliefs and eventually abandoned them completely. And then I suppose what really killed it off for me was uh, was a, a few years of philosophy at university, which uh, effectively left me a, a pretty much an atheist. Um, so, yeah, very much a, a, an atheist. Um, probably not what you'd call an anti-theistic atheist. I'm not, not one of these evangelical people who are going around saying, well, anyone who's uh, a believer is is delusional or stupid. I've met far too many perfectly sane, perfectly sensible, and perfectly you know, highly intelligent believers to to uh, to maintain that. I also don't think that religion is some terrible blight on the face of humanity, and that we need to to get rid of it. Um, uh, in fact, I've just finished writing a fairly lengthy article on uh, on what we call the, the the myth of religious violence. This idea that religion is somehow uniquely uh, and particularly violent, and so we we must um, strive to to eliminate it, which is something that people like Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens, uh, Christopher Hitchens used to say, Sam Harris still says, and that's very much what I suppose the message of the so-called new atheism. Um, I, I, I frankly, I think that's highly optimistic. I'm a bit more cynical. I think the sum total of human happiness and unhappiness would stay exactly the same if religion would have disappeared tomorrow. I think humans would find other reasons to be horrible to each other or to be nice to each other. I, I, I really don't think it makes that much of a difference. Um, so as a result, I'm, I'm, uh, I don't care whether believers believe. Um, and, you know, to, to use the cliche, some of my best friends are, are believers. In fact, my oldest friend is a Christian priest, a Catholic priest and monk um, in, uh, in Minnesota. Uh, and we get together periodically, not much lately, thanks to COVID. Um, but uh, yeah, we, we got together for lunch. He was here in Sydney just before the, the pandemic. And we sit and we talk about things we have in common and we kind of avoid the stuff we don't have in common and we get on extremely well. He's a highly intelligent, very learned, educated guy and we uh, we, we had great conversations. Um, but it was really, it was an interest in history that brought me to to unbelief. And, and that makes me think a little bit different to many uh, to many atheists. I think many atheists come to it from a study of science. I'm certainly very interested in science, um, a study of philosophy. And again, I've, I've got a, a background in, in that as well as history. But the I think the moment uh, that I always kind of pinpoint as being the turning point for me was the conversation when I was 17, um, so quite a few years ago now. It was a conversation in high school between um, the, the, our, our school uh, evangelical Christian um, who was a complete pain in the ass and uh, a guy who I actually thought was pretty cool, but he was, a, he was kind of a, he was an agnostic. 
And she was trying to convert him and he was countering her, her attempts. And um, even though I, my beliefs at that stage were probably closer to hers, um, I thought he got the best of the conversation, which really kind of made me stop and think. Because she kept saying, Jesus said this, and he'd say, how do you know? And she would say, Jesus did that, and he would say, how do you know? And then she would say, Jesus was this, and he would say, how do you know? And, and every time she said, because the Bible tells me so, he would say, how do we know who wrote the Bible? You know, when were the Gospels written? Who wrote them? And she really didn't have answers. And I realised, as I was kind of thinking, yeah, she's a bit of an idiot, I realised I didn't know the answers at that stage either. So I went off to try and find the answers and did so with, you know, all the confidence of a 17-year-old, um, thinking that I was going to be able to to find those answers very easily. And if anyone challenged me in the way that he challenged her, I would be able to, to give him very smart answers. What I reasonably quickly found was um, that the answers were much more complicated than I realised. And that led me down, I suppose, several years of of, uh, study of the origins of Christianity. Uh, And and you can probably tell where that led to. So that got got me to the point where I realised that the the claims that Christianity makes about Jesus are wrong. Um, But it also made me very interested in the topic of how Christianity began and how it developed. And, And because I already had an interest in ancient medieval history, it kind of meshed with that, um, and then went on to study history at, at university, particularly medieval history. So that's that's kind of a, the, the path that I've been on. And what, what then happened was um, in the early 2000s, suddenly atheism went from being something that you kind of didn't bring up at dinner parties because it killed the conversation to being the conversation at dinner parties. I mean, everyone was reading the God delusion and, and God is not great and so on and, and was and was talking about, um, which I, I found kind of interesting. And uh, I started, I read those books and I started reading um, various blogs and, and, and forums that were arising at that point uh, about atheism. What I discovered was two things. First of all, I discovered that atheists talking to other atheists about atheism that is really dull. Um, you know, lots of people sitting around saying, yes, we, we agree there is no God. It gets really boring after a while. So what then tends to happen is that they find things to argue about. And when I was looking at some of those arguments, I found that a lot of people were arguing or we were making arguments about, about religion based on history. And the, the, the history that they were drawing on was complete nonsense. Uh, and... Uh, it, it was this sort of caricature of, of what I understood from, by that stage, decades of study of particularly the origins of Christianity, ancient and, and medieval history. And so they were they were coming out with this kind of this version of history, which they'd effectively picked up from um, uh, popular culture, but also from reading other atheists. So there was this kind of atheist bubble in which everyone was saying, yes, Christianity came along and destroyed ancient learning, they burned down the Great Library of Alexandria. They killed all the philosophers, plunged us into a dark age. The, the, the Middle Ages was this sort of theocracy until the glorious dawning of the Renaissance. Um, and then along came the scientific revolution, the Enlightenment and us. And, and we have to make sure that we don't get dragged back into the dark ages by, uh, by, by religion, particularly Christianity and, and radical Islam. And there was a whole lot in that, that narrative which was wrong. And me being me, I was 
you know, I'm very naive with all. If I just kind of politely correct these people, then they will see that what they're saying is incorrect. Um, some of them did. Most of them didn't. Most of them stuck stuck very strongly uh, and vehemently to uh, to their, their kind of 19th century conception of history. Uh, and this became a little frustrating. Also, I got a bit um, tired of repeating myself. I was cutting and pasting the same stuff because it was always the same myths coming up over and over and over again. So that's how I started the blog. The blog is really, historyforatheist.com is really um, a way of saving myself time. So every time I came across some of these myths, I could simply link to a fairly detailed, carefully resourced, uh, sourced and, and researched article. And that just meant I didn't have to repeat myself over and over again. So it was really, the blog was just me being a bit lazy. Um, it's now now taken on a life of its own. I now find myself with quite a large audience um, who clamour for a new article every month. Uh, and uh, and then I've, I've launched, more recently, I've launched the, uh, the, the video channel and the podcast. So I'm making even more work for myself. So it hasn't worked. I thought I was going to save myself time and effort. And I've actually, uh, actually turned it into a, a small sort of publishing industry. But that's okay. It's fine. Created more work for yourself in the end. Very much. Yeah, yeah no, that's that's really interesting, and uh, hopefully, as a conversation between atheists, we won't make this too boring uh, for you. But uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I think that's it's, it's quite interesting because what you're picking up there is that even within sort of the atheist movement, there becomes this new mythology that sort of is created uh, around. Yeah religion and its sort of detrimental effects throughout history and I guess I'm, I'm curious to, to see uh, your thoughts on whether is is some of that just to justify their position is some of that defensiveness um, I what I seem seem to find with most um, narratives on history is people take their current understanding of what they see in their current worldview and certainly you know obviously there are plenty of um, problems especially i'm thinking particularly in the u.s right now where you know there's there's probably a lot of political tension and christianity is right at the heart of that is it a bit of a back projection uh of some of what exists now into into the past and that's not actually accurate to the historical movement of christianity yeah there's certainly an element of that um the, the mythology if we can call it that, so sort of you know, this sort of mythic atheist, um, uh, atheist historiography is really about 200 years old. So it, it's relatively new um, and it, it dates back to the writers of the Enlightenment. It dates back to people like Voltaire, uh, Gibbon, um, the, the philosophes, uh, Thomas Paine, and really it, a lot of the ideas, almost all of the ideas that I'm, I'm kind of working to try to, to correct and debunk, uh, go, date back to that period and to a certain extent to the 19th century. Um, and I'm, I'm actually starting to now to kind of develop, a, I suppose, a bit of a, a, bit of a, a theory as to, as to why it began then, but I'll, 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 I'll kind of leave that to one side for the moment. But effectively what, what we're talking about is these people are taking um, 
a very common conception of, of history. You know, we have the ancients, Greeks and Romans, that were wise and wonderful and rational and scientific. And then, uh, then Christianity destroyed that. We had the Dark Ages. Then we had the Renaissance, where that, that ancient learning started to get revived. That led to the Enlightenment and the Scientific Revolution and the Industrial Revolution. And, and that was because we freed ourselves from um, the, the shackles of, of religion. This idea effectively arose in the 18th century uh, and became very common. And so it's permeated our, our, uh, our consciousness. So you get things like um, uh, on, on The Family Guy, there was an episode where Stewie and, and uh, Brian the dog um, uh, appear in what looks like some kind of futurist world. And, and uh, Stewie says, are we in the future? And Brian says, no, we're in, the, we're in an alternative present where Christianity didn't destroy ancient learning and and you've got spaceships flying around and stuff. Now, the joke there is, is, is based on an understanding that that's what happened. So this stuff has absolutely permeated our popular consciousness. What's going on is that many of these people, and I include here people like Hitchens and Harris and so on, is they're simply taking their common, um, what historians would argue would be a misconception of history, and, and just assuming it without question, which is kind of ironic considering these people are meant to be rationals, rationalists and sceptics who are meant to question everything, uh, and also who, who say on matters of science, pay attention to the experts. Well, they're actually disregarding what modern historians say and are harking back to this sort of 18th century idea. On the point of back projection, though, um, there is a hell of a lot of that. One of the, the key elements of this sort of mythos is what we call the conflict thesis. Uh, which is also known as the, the Draper White thesis. This is the idea that religion and science have been in conflict down the ages, that religion has been trying to drag us back or, or hold us back, and science has been trying to progress us. And that uh, all through the ages, religion has been persecuting scientists and has been trying to restrict scientific understanding. This is called the Draper White thesis because in the late 19th century, you had two American writers, many of whom were actually historians, who wrote very popular books on this topic and, and who argued this. So you had Andrew Dixon White and John William Draper. Um, these, this idea became seized and became part of the, the, uh, the popular consciousness. And so as a result, it's it just assumed in, uh, in, in a lot of atheist discourse that that's what happened. Actual historians of science rejected the Draper White conception of the warfare thesis or the conflict thesis about a century ago. No historian of science today takes that idea seriously. But that's because Dixon and White, in order to make that idea work, actually had to manipulate, cherry pick, and make up a whole lot of evidence. And what was actually going on was they were writing in the 1870s, 1880s, in the wake of the impact of Darwinian evolution, on uh, on uh, which was heading in one direction in, in, in social and cultural force, on the event, rising evangelical movement in America, which was heading in the opposite direction, and the two clashed. That was and continues to be, particularly in the United States, a genuine case of conflict between religion and science. But what Dixon and White did was they took that as the norm. Where actually in, in the history of science and religion, usually it's mainly the exception. And they then projected it back into the whole of, of history. And what they then had to do was find people in history who were uh, who were indicative of this conflict. And so the obvious person they chose was Galileo. 
And so uh, this is when a large part of the mythic version, what I call the cartoon version of the Galileo story, developed and, and again permeated popular culture. So if you ask most people what happened in the Galileo affair, they'd say um, Galileo proved that the Earth went around the sun. The church rejected that because they, were, they hated science. They threatened to burn him at the stake or torture him or whatever. He had to recant, but he was right and they were wrong. Um, that's the, the common conception of the Galileo story, and it's pure Dixon White. Um, it's also completely wrong. It's not what happened. <laughs> we might come back to Galileo. But then they have to find they have to find other martyrs. So Giordano Bruno, who was burned at the stake in 1599, he becomes a, a great scientist who who, uh, who was burned at the stake because he believed in, in the heliocentrism and because he believed in multiple worlds and, and, and the church killed him because they, because they disagreed. And then you go all the way back to the 5th century Hypatia of Alexandria, uh, who was murdered by, by a mob in Alexandria um, in 410. Um, she was, sorry, 415. She was, uh, she was a scientist, she was. And, and so she becomes murdered because she was a scientist. And so this is evidence of the beginning of the Dark Age and so on. Um, again, that's not what happened. So, so what, they, what they've done is they've created this story. And as you say, Daniel, they've projected a lot of modern uh, anxieties, a lot, of, a lot of modern conflict and so on back. Um, and, and what historians have been trying to do for about the last 100 years is unpick that. A book came out two years ago on really on the historiography of the conflict thesis. It's called The Idea That Will Not Die. And uh, it's a series of very interesting, very learned essays by historians of science on why it is that even though historians of science rejected this idea and have, complete, have completely debunked this idea for 100 years, it still permeates our popular consciousness. And several of those essays point to people like Dawkins, uh, Hitchens and Harris um, and, and various others, uh, a certain Richard Carrier gets mentioned, as examples of, of why it, it still has polemical force because it, it fits a certain type of prejudice against religion, even though it's not actually a very good history at all. Yeah, that's... That's really interesting. And uh, I think you've given some really good examples there of just how much we want to distort some of that picture sometimes to fit with the worldview that's already set. Um, I'd be curious just to see on on the flip side, because obviously, you know, you're sort of defending against this aging hypothesis that really has just been completely uh, debunked in sort of the more scholarly circles. But, you know, from your understanding of history, would there be periods of time where you would say that actually no sort of religious sentiment really went sour at that point and caused some real problems? Would there still be some elements where you could pull out that actually there, there was something that went quite dreadfully wrong there? Uh, there, were, there, were certainly, there were certainly examples of, of conflict. And, and this is why the, the straight up Draper White style conflict thesis has been replaced by what now gets referred to as the complexity issue, uh, the complexity thesis. It's it's a bit like you know the old Facebook relationship status. You know, it's complicated, um, and that's because religion has often 
provided a kind of an intellectual uh, stimulus to to change and to to the adoption of of, uh, of scientific ideas. And sometimes it, it it has done the opposite. For example, there was a period in in uh, in early Christianity where there was a genuine debate about what we do with all this pagan knowledge, well, what we, you know, they, they being Christians, they, they were asking themselves the question, well, do we need to study this stuff? Early Christianity, very early Christianity, first, obviously, first century, early second century Christianity was very much a religion of peasants and nobodies. Once it started to, in the, in the later second century, once it started to permeate a, uh, a more intellectual type of convert, these guys found themselves in conflict with, um, with caught between their, their new beliefs and and the the uh, uh, the body of ancient uh, knowledge and wisdom that they had inherited as learned Greco-Roman um, uh, men, or mainly men. And so the, the question became: Well, do we can we keep studying this this Aristotle and Plato and all this stuff, all this you know, natural philosophy? And is any of that is any of that any good, or do we jettison it all? And there was a, a school of thought, um, particularly based around Antioch in the, in the second and third centuries, that, that did uh, say, we don't need any of that stuff. That is now all redundant. We can reject it completely because we have the revelation. We, you know, we've been visited by God. He came down and he's told us this stuff. And we've got this, this now this body or, or developing body of, uh, of, uh, of works which are inspired. Um, this is all we need. So that was one school of thought. So sometimes when people uh, like A.C. Grayling, for example, and there's recently a book by a woman uh, called Catherine Nixie on the darkening age about how Christianity destroyed all ancient knowledge and learning, um, they, they point to these people. They point to arguments by people like Tertullian, who said, yeah, what, what, what uh, conversation does Athens have with Jerusalem? In other words, we, we don't need we don't need Jerusalem. Christianity doesn't need Athens for philosophy. Uh, or people like John Chrysostom, who mocked um, uh, scientists for staring into the heavens and tells the story of one who was observing the heavens and, and fell down a well. You know, are these people stupid? So what they do is they, they hold up these examples and say, this is what Christianity said. What they don't do is talk about the other side of the argument, because on the other side, there were other Christians who were saying, no, we should study this stuff because it's a gift from God. So you have people like Clement of Alexandria who argued that all wisdom ultimately comes from God. And so to reject uh, any wisdom, even if it comes from a, from a pagan source, is rejecting a, a gift from God. He, he argued that it, he used an analogy of the ocean. He said that the wisdom of God is like an ocean that's fed by many rivers and the rivers are fed by many tributaries. So for us to, to simply say, well, this river is the only one is, is stupid. Obviously, many rivers flow into the ocean of truth. Um, and he argued that just as the Jews have been given uh, a, a special gift from God for divine revelation, so the Greeks have been given a special gift from God for the rational analysis of the world, uh, especially the physical world. So he argued that, that and, and many others argued, that um, they should preserve this ancient knowledge and that they could continue to study it. Don't agree with all of it. Obviously, there were elements in it that they, they thought were wrong, but um, they, they still thought there was much in it that was still of, of value. So the, those this is the point. Those guys won the argument. 
and this is what people like AC Grayling and Catherine Nixie don't seem to realise or pretend not to. They won the argument. So by the time you get to the 5th century, you have St Augustine, uh, who was heavily influential on, on particularly on Western thought, um, but who was representing an idea that was already very, very common in, in, um, in Christian thought generally, arguing for what he called carrying off the gold of the Egyptians. So he said that just as the Israelites in, in the book of Exodus escape from Egypt and carry off the treasures of Pharaoh and melt it down and use it to, to make the, the, the vessels of the tabernacle and for the worship of God, so Christians should carry off the, the, the treasures of pagan knowledge and utilise it. Uh, so this, this analogy became the dominant one, and this meant that um, they didn't reject uh, all of the knowledge of the ancient world. In fact, um, paradoxically, if you can read any of that stuff, Archimedes, Aristotle, Plato, it's because the succession of Christian scribes studied it and preserved it. Um, and yes, some Arab scribes were in, and scholars were in there as well, but they got it from the Christians. <laughs> so a lot of people say to me, oh, no, that no, was preserved by the Arabs. And I say, well, where do you think they got it from? Did it tumble from the heavens? Did they find it in a cave with a note from Aristotle saying, you know, in case the Christians destroy all this? Um, of course they didn't. They, they got it from, from Byzantine, Nestorian scholars, uh, and, and then it found its way from the Arab world back into the Western world. Um, so it, 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 there are points where, where uh, Christianity does come into conflict, but on the whole, uh, they, they haven't caused the kind of ruptures that a lot of atheist historiography assumes. And to go to the other end of, of, the, of the time scale, creationism is uh, another example of, of a genuine conflict where Christianity uh, developed into a particular form in America a Protestant um, a biblical literalist form that could not find its way out of uh, the impact, you know, the, the, the conflict with, with, uh, with Darwinism. And so had to, rather than find a way to accommodate it the way the rest of Christianity did, had to reject it. But it's exceptional. And, and one of the weird things is, you know, particularly it's nice to be talking to a couple of poms um, because American atheists come from this much a, a stranger world and I kind of understand why they are a lot more angry than you, you guys and I am. Because if I lived in, in, if I'd just lived through Donald Trump's America, I'd probably be a bit militant as well. But, but what happens there is that they tend to assume that all, Christ, all of Christianity is like American evangelical fundamentalist Christianity, which, you know, my, my learned priest and monk friend, you know, who lives in America finds it extremely um, wearying because he, he's not a fundamentalist, he's not a, a biblical literalist, uh, he's a man of great subtle thinking, but he gets lumped in with the crazies. And I think that gives a lot of atheists a very distorted view of what Christianity is, and therefore that gets projected back onto, uh, onto the past as well. Yeah, so helpful. I think... Um especially in this kind of modern day where we have things like Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, we, we get so um, encapsulated in um, quick, witty um, tweets or, or kind of like motifs essentially that kind of say, this is what this is what it is about, right? This is, this is what it is. And we also like, I think, um, simple comforts. Like I, I, I consistently find myself um, trying to settle the most simplest hypothesis I can in my head so that I can just carry that little bit of nugget with me wherever I go. And I think this this is really interesting into, I know you recently kind of hit um, a thousand subscribers on YouTube, which is a big 
milestone so congratulations there and um, but i also noticed that you said very soon after that is like something along the lines of oh crap all the jesus mythicists are now here as well um which i find you know, absolutely fascinating so there's this group of people who um, essentially um find it easier to believe that jesus literally didn't exist he's just he was just a, a fabricated story that we've kind of adopted or some, someone's made up and we've adopted um and yeah, that pe people actually believe this, which I find really interesting. And I'm, I, I, I consistently come back to trying to understand how somebody could even begin to think that's true. But obviously, a lot of people do think it's true. So I wonder if you, if you could kind of touch on that for us, Tim. How, how do people believe that? How do you push against that? What is that all about? Yeah, that one's a really interesting one, uh, uh, Sam. And, and um, so, yeah, I, 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 I have, as you can probably imagine, I've given a great deal of thought to that because... I've spent now coming up to about like 15, 20 years debating mythicists. Um, and not because I actually care whether or not Jesus existed. I mean, if someone presented me with a good argument that he didn't exist, I'd say, okay, fine, terrific. I mean, I don't give a stuff. But um, I just happen to think mythicism is a particularly bad hypothesis. Uh, so, so why do, why do, why is there this disjunction? Because the overwhelming majority of scholars in any relevant field, including all non-Christian scholars, pretty much all Jewish scholars, except that there, there almost certainly was, you know, most likely was a historical Jesus. Obviously, they don't believe he was the guy who walked on water and rose from the dead, but um, but they believe that he was, there was a Jewish preacher who was he was the point of origin of those uh, of those stories, and and that there was one, not some multiplicity of them, and that. Uh, and that he, he, you know, he, he, he was a guy from Galilee. He was probably almost certainly from Nazareth. That he was, you know, a brother called James. He had some other brothers. So there's some things that we can say with a reasonable degree of likely certainty. And he was crucified. Um, so, so why is there, that the case? Why is there is, is it the most skeptical, critical scholars accept that there was a historical Jesus? And yet, every time I see a poll on an atheist website. You know, did did Jesus exist at all? The, the mythicists are always way out in front. Um, there's usually about kind of like 30, 30% or so of people who are saying that, yeah, there probably was someone. But it's about usually, it's roughly about sort of, you know, some, something like sort of 50, 50 60% that say he, there wasn't. Why? Um, I, th I think there's a couple of things going on here. Um, I do blame the internet. Um, it, it's, it, it is one of those ideas that, that has gained strange sort of strength because of the way in which the internet works. So way back when I was uh, first studying the origins of Christianity, obviously I came across mythicism because mythicism isn't new, like it wasn't invented you know, 15 years ago. Uh, it didn't pop out of the ground when, when the, the Zeitgeist pop, um, pop documentary became popular. It's been around for 100 years. And 100 years ago, it was being carefully considered by actual scholars. A hundred years ago, there was a lot of, uh, of, of new stuff happening in the field of the origins of Christianity and, and New Testament studies. And so mythicism arose in the late 19th century, mid 19th century. It gained a, a bit of force and was really being presented as a, uh, as a credible hypothesis by some, a, majority, a minority, of, of genuine scholars in the, in the late 19th, early 20th century. It was considered and it was rejected. It was rejected because it, it has some serious flaws. So when mythicists say, oh, no, they, there's this prejudice against us, and that's why that, that, there's that consensus, that's crap. It, it, it's been considered. And every time I look at a mythicist argument, when I go back to trace back where it came from, 
it goes back to this period. But they haven't got any new arguments. They've got maybe two, and they're both terrible. So it, it, it's, it's an old idea. So why is this old idea that has been considered by you know, um, scholars been rejected? Why is it so popular now? I, I think what's going on is um, it, it's riding on the back of what you referred to before as kind of the atheist movement, which is very much an online phenomenon in itself. So back when I was first studying uh, Christianity's origins, I looked at mythicism. I thought, okay, that's a that's an idea. I considered it. I thought, okay, I can see some serious problems with that, and I rejected it. I never came across any mythicists for years at all. And then suddenly in the late 90s, I started to see them popping up online. And then it, then it really kind of took off with the rise of the so-called new atheism movement. It kind of rode on its coattails. So they're, they're kind of twin phenomena. One of the things that I think is going on there is that many people again, particularly our dear friends in America, but not just them. Many people come to, from, a, from a Christian background. They come to realise that a lot of it is wrong, uh, particularly if they're coming from a fundamentalist background. They get that rude shock when they realise that actually there are contradictions in the Bible and there's actually some serious problems with the concept of God. And then they think, okay, well, if that's the case, how do I account for Jesus? And if you go online and ask the question, and start to research the question online of how you account for Jesus, you usually get two uh, uh, sets of ideas. One is Christian apologists. Jesus is Lord. All this stuff happened. He did walk on water. He did rise from the dead. You know, you get you get uh, uh, William James, William Lane Craig. You get you know the bloody uh, Josh McDowell. You get all all that stuff. If you if you then look for an alternative, what you generally find is mythicism because they're reasonably prolific and, and, uh, and they've got a set of arguments that are actually reasonably carefully honed, should be, they're 100 years old. And so it gets presented as the alternative. What you don't find is something in the middle, which is what actual critical non-Christian scholars believe, which is about um, Jesus in his context as, a, as, a, as a probably an apocalyptic Jewish preacher, the context that led to that how that developed into the early Christian movement and developed into from the Jesus sect into the Christ cult and into eventually Christianity as we know it today. In order to, uh, to, to get that understanding, you have to do this radical thing called reading books because most of that stuff is in books. So you can see there's a picture behind me of my bookshelf. See, I read books. And so as a result, I'm reading a whole lot of stuff that these guys aren't reading. And so, and so what happens, it's kind of a bit amusing, but, but when I come across mythicists online, they, they, they trot out, they're a bit like creationists, they trot out these, these rote-learned answers. And then you, you, you tell them, you know, from my books, well, that's not what happened and here's what scholars actually say happened. Well, that doesn't make sense because of this. They've got nowhere to go because they, all they've got is these rote-learned answers. This is why they usually come back and say, well, you know, you're only pretending to be an atheist and you're really a, a Christian and so on, because they haven't actually got any counter-arguments usually. Um, what's happening is that there is a genuine vacuum, I think, between uh, Christian apologism and, and, uh, and this, this fringe idea of mythicism. And as a result, people are being sucked across to, from, from a fundamentalist Christian belief across to this radical idea. That's one thing that's happening. I think the other thing that's happening is psychological. So if you, 
I mean, I remember the, the shock of discovering that actually, no, you know, Luke probably didn't write the Gospel of Luke and and actually the, there's a massive contradiction between the, the two accounts of Jesus' birth and uh, and they're, they're also completely at variance with what we know about history. The same with the trial of Jesus. It couldn't have happened that way. I remember that being quite, that being quite shocking. And a lot of particularly fundamentalist Christians or ex-fundamentalist Christians go from one extreme, it's all true, to the other extreme. Well, therefore, none of it is true. And, and obviously that doesn't follow. Some of it could actually be true. I mean, when you think about it, a lot of the stuff in the Gospels is actually pretty unremarkable. Jesus went here and said this. Jesus told this story. Jesus did that. You know, Jesus got crucified. That's kind of what we'd expect for someone like him in that period. They tended not to live for very long uh, once he came up against the Roman Empire. So a lot of it is actually actually makes a hell of a lot of sense. But what happens is that, that people who have been raised to think in absolutes go from one absolute to the other. I've actually got a, an interview um, hopefully coming up um, with, with a guy called Derek Lambert. I've been on his show. He, he hosts the Myth Vision uh, uh, podcast and, and, uh, and video channel. Great guy, a really lovely fella. But I'm going to turn the tables. He's interviewed me a few times. I'm going to interview him. And, and we're, going to, we're going to talk about this because he's been a fundamentalist Christian became a hardline mythicist and is now a historicist. So he's kind of been on quite a long journey. And he's an interesting guy because he's very open-minded. Um, he, he interviews Robert Price, who's probably one of the more uh, sensible of the, of the mythicist scholars. Um, and he, he's now doing a series of interviews with Bart Ehrman, who's, who's one of the, the more prominent uh, scholars in the field, a non-Christian. And, uh, and who's also written a book on why he thinks mythicism is wrong. Um, he's, he's now got to the point where he doesn't even debate mythicists anymore. He's just completely over it, which I kind of understand. Um, but I, I, think, I think there's a lot of psychological pressures there. I think there's also, a, a, as I said, there's a, there's a bit of a gulf, um, which I, I'm trying to, to fill. So I'm trying to, I do intend in, in the future to, to do a video on um, the apocalyptic context for the historical Jesus and why it appears that that's what he was. He appears to have been a, a preacher who thought that the end times were coming very soon, probably in his lifetime. Maybe we can talk about that in a bit more detail later. Hey, I want to take a minute of your time to talk about supporting When Belief Dies. This will always be an advertisement-free podcast, and for that reason, I hope you will be willing to share this episode with your friends and family. Subscribe to the podcast in your favorite podcast app and check us out over on YouTube. Finally, I want to ask you to consider supporting the show financially. You can support the show on Patreon with a monthly gift or a one-off donation via PayPal. Everything that you give goes directly towards running and improving the blog and podcast. Take a look in the description for all the links and thank you for supporting the show. Right, let's get back to this week's episode. Yeah, this is um, 
this is my bag totally this is the stuff i absolutely love um so i've actually i've actually just stepped down from um recording the audio versions for bart ehrman's blogs i've been doing it with um john paul middleworth um for for about i don't know just about three months now or so but um i've got too much stuff on to carry on but i absolutely love uh, bart ehrman and his work he's um he's a great guy um anyway um, enough about Ehrman. I think um, what, what, what I found really interesting about Christianity, especially when I was within Christianity, was um, harmonization. So you've already mentioned that kind of there's you've, you've obviously got the the um, birth narratives in in Matthew and Luke, and we very easily kind of combine those together to kind of create this almost like a Christmas story, essentially, where all this stuff happens in one go. But then we actually even see that with the, with all the Gospels in total. Like we take all four of them and we just make them into one single Gospel, as one narrative where Jesus basically is say, walking around saying that he's God and doing all these things and also talking about judgment and, and and you just kind of cram everything together and i think there is this there's this this this, this desire within christianity um especially the christianity that i was from which was a very conservative christianity to um make everything fit into a nice little box so that it makes sense and you can present it and it is this coherent piece and this narrative and and as you begin to look at the texts you um, as you've already said you find discrepancies you find issues you find problems you begin to kind of drill down into um into this um, apocalyptic preacher who said apocalyptic stuff and then after people believe that he rose from the dead this apocalyptic movement began and you even see paul talking about jesus returning in his lifetime and then changing what he's saying as he's trying to, to he's trying to wrestle with this idea that actually these people have died and Jesus hasn't come back and I'm going to die Jesus hasn't come back and it's just this this interesting um yeah continuation I kind of wonder it, it'd be really interesting to, to, to kind of get your thoughts on um how how we can help people to not be frightened to engage with this stuff because I think you see both Christians and non-Christians unwilling to look at scholarship and to begin to address this this vast array of of complexity but actually when you begin to get into it it's I just find it absolutely fascinating so yeah what what are your thoughts Tim? Yeah, it's interesting um, because uh, um, I, I kind of kept went through that, that those stages as well. As did the entire field of of, of the study of, of the origins of Christianity. It, it actually began back in the 18th century with what, what we call the the lives of Christ, which were which were attempts to to try to uh, scholarly attempts to try and reconcile the various stories in the Gospels and and bring them together into a kind of a nice neat harmonised narrative. Uh, and and they increasingly found that it couldn't be done, and that's really how the whole critical study of of, uh, of the, the New Testament and therefore this entire field began. Um, how to get people to, to to find that as fascinating as we do, Sam? <laughs> some people some people just don't, and they just don't want to. And and I, I suppose I'm kind of uh, I've come to the to the conclusion that you, you just can't you can't get people to see that it is. One of the things I come across all the time is people saying, uh, whenever I, uh, let's say we're talking about the existence of, of, of Jesus as a historical figure, um, whenever I, I start to present any evidence that is from the New Testament, and, and uh, I, I, I get this reaction from some people that, that it's just immediately this, this kind of visceral aversion you know, you're quoting, you're, you're citing you know, Galatians 1.19. As soon as you start using biblical verses, you get this almost sort of like physical, like, Ugh! and and they say things like, you can't use the Bible to prove the Bible, which is one of the most asinine arguments. But it, it what they what they what they see is okay. Well, you're, you're you're citing the Bible. It looks to me like you're you're doing what what apologists do. 
because apologists do that. They use proof text. They say, well, you know, we know that this is the case because of what it says in Matthew 1, 2, 23 or whatever. Um, but what they don't seem to be able to understand, and I'm, I'm still struggling to find a succinct way to explain, is I'm not proving the Bible. In fact, I'm not using the Bible. I'm using ancient texts. They ended up in the Bible hundreds of years later. But when Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians, he, just wrote, he was writing a letter. He was writing a letter because he was angry because the Galatians were had people coming and saying things about him that he didn't like. And he was saying, no, 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 that's not true. It was just a letter. So, so of course, what we're doing when I, what I'm doing when I'm, I'm so referring to a text from Galatians is, is I'm saying, well, if he's saying this, this is what he must have been, must have believed. And if he believed that, this is what that implies about the existence of Jesus. But, but some people, um, they, they just want to reject it completely. And it's, it's, it's really quite interesting with some of them how visceral, how emotional that, that is. Because here are people who are claiming to be highly rational, and yet some of their reactions to, uh, to any kind of historical analysis of, this, of this, uh, the origins of Christianity is, is, is simply, it's all woo, it's, it's, it's all the Bible, it's all, you know, you don't talk to me about Jeebus. It, it, it's this quite silly, quite juvenile stuff, but, but it's because they just want to push it away. And, and I think with, with some people who have, who have been through some fairly sort of abusive, I mean, I, I was a pretty, un, un, uh, 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 I suppose, fanatical sort of a Christian as a kid, but people who, who have really been sort of you know, pushed through a, 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 a fairly rigid maybe sometimes quite abusive type of, of Christianity, um, that's understandable. Um, but it's not an excuse for, for maintaining stupid arguments or saying stuff that's wrong. I think that's a very fair point and yeah it, it is it is good that you point that out because certainly that's been you know I, I think both for Sam and I especially you know when you leave faith later on in life having believed it for so long there's a lot of anger there there's a lot of pain and there's a lot of hurt and certainly it just expresses itself in such weird ways and I you know you see that in some of these arguments but you're quite right to sort of pull out that especially you know those of us who are trying to hold to higher levels of rationalism and skepticism because of trying to leave uh faith and sort of correct for some things i think it's absolutely right to be challenged on that i'd be curious to understand you know especially for those of us who are, are not professional historians and probably never will be how how do you best sort of suggest that we engage with sort of the historical conversations what are some of the important concepts to understand about historical inquiry that would help us just navigate that in the best possible way yeah um okay so so i should probably stress i'm not a professional historian either uh so i've had um you know i've been training at university i studied um, the historical method at university but I'm really uh, an amateur when it comes to this stuff. But whenever that gets pointed out by people who are trying to denigrate me or or dismiss what I'm saying, I simply say, well, it's not my qualifications that count, it's the people that I'm referring to. So really what I'm doing is is curating 
the consensus of, of scholarship. And I'm very, very careful in my blog and, and in my videos if I ever present an idea that isn't um, generally accepted by critical scholars, I'll flag that. And if I'm ever presenting an idea that's sort of my my thoughts on the matter, I make I try to make sure that that's fairly clear as well. But on the whole, what I'm doing is I'm presenting you know, not just a scholar um, a scholar's idea because you can find mavericks anywhere on any question, um, but consensus. Um, so what do we need to keep in mind? I think I think the first thing is pay attention to consensus. And a lot of people say, well, that's an argument from authority. You're getting this all the time in, in, in Jesus' mythicism. If you point, ever point out the fact, and it's just a fact, that pretty much every scholar, with the exception of about like a handful of, of maverick um, fringe dwellers who are mainly people with no academic position, no standing at all, they might have qualifications. I mean, Richard Carrier is the obvious example there. Um, but when you point out that, that the vast majority, thousands upon thousands of scholars reject mythicism, um, people say, well, that's an argument from authority. Well, it's not. It's only an argument from authority if you say, all these guys believe this and therefore you should. But if you simply point out that there's, a, there's an overwhelming consensus and then talk about why, you're not making an argument from authority, you're simply noting a consensus. And the reason that's significant is that in history, consensus actually counts for something. In the sciences, hard sciences anyway, you can prove stuff. Uh, you can do experiments, you can make measurements, you can, you can show that certain things simply are. In history, you often can't, usually can't do that. Most history is, uh, is, is a matter of um, coming up with, with a subjective but structured evidence-based assessment of likelihood. Because events happen and then they're gone. You know, the past is ephemeral. What historians are doing is acting as detectives and they're coming along and looking at any fragments of evidence that are left behind by the events that have been and gone. So until we invent time machines, can actually go back and observe um, the past. That's all we can do. And so all historians are able to do is to look at these, these, uh, these fragments of evidence and, and come up with a hypothesis as to what they mean, what is likely to have happened and what, what that signifies. That's the whole enterprise of history. Modern historians have a problem in, in that they have too much evidence. So when you're studying the Second World War, you've got, you've got those masses of stuff. And so sorting through it is difficult and, and, and coming up with meaning is difficult for that reason. The further back you go, the, the, the less that becomes a problem and you end up with the opposite problem. We don't have enough. And this is one thing I think a lot of people don't understand is how exactly how fragmentary and how uncertain a hell of a lot of our evidence is. I mean, the whole of Roman history is based on you know, a couple of hundred sources, maximum. Um, a hell of a lot of stuff that people just sort of say, oh, well, this happened. Well, how do we know that? Well, it's mentioned once in Tacitus or Suetonius. That, that's it, right? So I think a lot of people think there's a lot more evidence than there actually is. So that's one problem. So one of the arguments that mythicists, uh, that, that not not mythicists, myth, what I call mythers, so the people who online enthusiasts who follow mythicism or, or believe it, um, they often say, well, there's no contemporary evidence for Jesus, therefore he didn't exist. Now, no historian of the ancient world would use that argument because we don't have contemporary evidence for most people in the ancient world, 
emperors, obviously, we've got contemporary evidence for them, and you know, senior politicians, major historians, major generals, and so on. We've got we've got evidence for them, but they're the exception. About sort of eighty to ninety percent of ancient figures that we know about are referred to sometimes in maybe one or two sources, sometimes in passing, usually long after they're dead, sometimes you know, after they're dead, usually quite often long after they're dead. Um, so, so of course that's the case for Jesus. It's also the case for every single other early first century Jewish preacher, prophet or messianic claimant. So whenever I come across that argument, I've got a whole article on this on my blog, whenever I come across that argument, I say to them, okay, we don't have any contemporary references to any of the other people like Jesus. Why should we expect it for Jesus? And that sometimes makes them stop and think. Sometimes it doesn't. But the, the, the idea that we should have uh, lots of reference to Jesus from his time um, simply doesn't make sense. Uh, it's a better argument against the, the magic Jesus of Christianity. I mean, if there was a guy who genuinely was walking on water and uh, raising people from the dead and feeding 5,000 people and flying in the sky, uh, then yeah, maybe we should get some references to him by someone in Rome or Corinth. But if he was just a guy in a backwater province, in fact, the backwater of a backwater province, telling some stories and, and preaching about a coming end time, why the hell would we expect any, anyone in Rome to note that or even know that he existed or care? Um, we have no references to, to uh, of this kind for, for people like Jesus. And, and so I think that, that's another thing that people need to, need to understand is that the evidence is highly fragmentary. But I think probably the final thing that, that you know, that, that needs to be understood is, is that, that concept of history as an assessment of likelihood. You can't prove that Jesus existed. You also can't prove that, um, that Julius Caesar crossed the Rubicon. He most likely did. Um, and we've got accounts, they kind of differ slightly, but we've got accounts of, of him crossing the Rubicon and that being a, a major event in, in the, you know, the effectively the inciting incident that began a, a series of civil wars. But can we definitely say definitively that it definitely happened? No, um, the best we can say is it, it, it most likely did. And that's the same with a lot of things in ancient history. So I think, I think once people understand that it's not a matter of proof, the historians don't deal in proof, then, then they start to get how the whole enterprise works. And, that's, and, and once they get their head around that, then a lot of the arguments that look pretty fuzzy uh, from the outside, particularly if you're coming to it from the sciences, start to make a lot more sense. Yeah, and this is why I love things like um, the, two, the two podcasts that spring to mind is um, History on Fire and, um, and Dan Carlin's Hardcore History, just those sorts of um, abilities for individuals to pull together sources and, and just to look at stuff and to kind of almost almost carve narratives to try and help us to be able to at least grapple with the sources because we, we, we've basically got all these different things, right? And we're trying to make sense of them, essentially. And we get to hear different people's opinions of how these overarching statements make sense. Um, and I know that you've spoken to to, to Tom Holland, um, Tim, on your podcast, and we've we've recently spoken to, to, to Tom as well on ours. And I thought it'd be really interesting to um, kind of push you and ask you your opinion of this as well as we, as we did with Tom which essentially um, obviously um, you aren't a Christian we aren't Christians either um, and we we all kind of come to the texts in different ways um, but I think something that's really interesting is obviously Christians come to the text and say there are things within them which make enough sense for them to hold the claim that, that Jesus 
literally died and and rose again and that there is evidence for that and, and they kind of settle that with obviously proclaiming that, that that jesus is their savior and lord i kind of wanted to get your take on on how christianity first spun like what was the thing that first began to actually make these people believe that this person rose from the dead and for this movement to spread into the into the dominant force that we that we see especially in the west today yeah okay so as far as the the start uh, is concerned I mean, obviously that the central claim of, of christianity is the idea that, that this guy rose from the dead and that means that he was something or other i mean they, they usually they usually modern orthodox christianity says therefore he was he was god um, earlier forms of Christianity probably said something else. He that that's a central claim. And one of the interesting things about Christianity is that it is a historical phenomenon. It's a historical religion, which is why it's always fascinated me a lot more than say Buddhism. Um, even though I find Buddhism very attractive, I, I I don't study it in the same way because I'm much more interested in the history. Uh, and, and of course, the, this central claim is the one that Christians always come back to. They have to. And, and they've been doing so right from the start. First uh, Corinthians 15 is, is Paul doing this. He's saying, unless you believe that he actually rose from the dead, then everything you believe is in vain, everything I've preached is in vain. So what happened? Um, I, I think the, first of all, we don't know. <laughs> Secondly, um, uh, I'm, I'm reasonably, no, I'm absolutely certain that he didn't rise from the dead. So, but, but I think we can, we can be pretty clear that he died and that it did happen in, you know, give or take the odd detail, but it, it happened more in roughly the way that the Gospels describe. In fact, that, that consistency on the general outline of what happened, he went to Jerusalem, he preached, he, he, was, he was arrested, um, there was some kind of maybe a trial, maybe, maybe, maybe not, but he, he was then, he was handed over to the Romans uh, and the Romans nailed him up. I think that general outline is, is pretty clear. There's a lot of trimmings around that, a lot of stuff you can sort of say, well, this maybe happened or this this, is, this seems to be uh, exegesis and embroidery. But what then happened was that they did go from being uh, these guys who were obviously uh, um, devastated by this event to coming up with this, this idea that, or presenting this idea that he was in some sense alive again. And, and of course, the Christian argument that it must have been, this must have been because he did rise from the dead. There's no other explanation for how this, these stories arose, how this belief arose. There's no other explanation for how this defeated, small defeated group went from that very rapidly to, 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 the, to proclaiming a trial. That's the only explanation he must have risen from the dead. Actually, if you look at um, uh, modern sociological and psychological studies of what happens when prophecy fails, is uh, is that it's exactly exactly the opposite of that. Um, all, all psychological studies, all sociological studies of what happens when prophecy fails, is they don't usually say, "Oh, well, we're wrong," and and pack up and go home. Uh, in fact, what generally happens is the more committed they are. What generally happens is they find a way to, to turn the defeat into a trial. And there's study after study and case study after case study of this happening. And we, we've seen it um, in, in, you remember there was, the, I think it was the 2012, what was the year that the world was meant to end? I and mean, there's been several of them. There was the Mayan prophecy and there was another one. Yeah, there's, there's been so many. 
I think it's the 10 year anniversary of one of those uh, predictions uh, today. Actually, I saw really? quite a few mentions on, on Twitter around it. Yes. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, so what happened? I mean, it wasn't that when it didn't occur, the, the proponents then said, Oh, yeah, we're idiots. Um, looks like you, all your skeptics were right. We're dickheads. And, uh, we, yeah, we'll just admit that we're wrong. They never do. They always find a way. To reinterpret it, to push the, the date back, to to find a uh, find a, 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 an excuse, and find a way to rescue as much of the former belief as they possibly can. This seems to have been, I would argue, and, and I think most critical scholars would argue, this seems to be what happens with Jesus. They go to Jerusalem with great expectation that uh, something is going to happen, something triumphant is going to happen, probably. The coming of the kingdom of God. You know, God is going to is going to appear with armies of angels. The Romans will be swept away. The world will be renewed. Uh, Jesus will will be seated at the right hand of of God. They will all be seated on thrones. You know, there's a that bit of the Gospels where they're arguing about who's going to sit on what chair. Um, it's it's this is the expectation, and the exact opposite happens. He gets arrested. He gets crucified, and he dies. So so what they try and do is they try and come up with a way in which that is the plan all along. And this is why the narratives of the, of the execution or the passion of Jesus is are riddled with, with references to overt and, uh, and subtle to uh, Old Testament um, uh, prophecies or just Old Testament texts. And that's, that's a reflection of what obviously happened in that period after his death and before they, they started to go out and proclaim this new version of the message. Well, actually, how, why did this happen? Ah, oh, it was meant to happen all along. And, and what, what we find is that texts that had never been interpreted this way before uh, suddenly start getting pressed into service. So things like the suffering servant passages in, in Isaiah, um, parts of Psalm 22, they, they get interpreted in this, in this new way. Um, did they believe that he had actually physically risen from the dead and flown off into the sky? Uh, initially, I don't think so. And if you look at, I mentioned before, about what Paul says in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about how he, Jesus appeared. He appeared to James. He appeared to Peter. He appeared to 500 of the brothers at the, at the same time. And then last of all, as though to one born late in time, he appeared also to me. The verb is the same in, in that whole passage for all, each of those appearances. He doesn't make a differentiation apart from being last. He doesn't make a differentiation between what he saw, which is pretty clearly a vision, and what these other guys saw. It only takes on a kind of a corporeality later when we when we start to get the uh, the resurrection appearance stories in in the Gospels. Uh, but even there, we start to see there are elements which are a bit puzzling. If he if he actually physically rose from the dead, so you know, um, they're on the road to a mouse and and they're talking to this guy and. And then they, they sit down to, to have dinner with him and he breaks the bread and they realise, oh, it's Jesus. It's like, really? I mean, even, even as when I was a believer, I thought that story doesn't make a whole lot of sense. They didn't notice what was going on there. Uh, and again, in, in the John um, uh, Gospel of John version, Mary meets Jesus in the garden. She thinks he's the gardener. Well, I don't know about you, but if, if a friend of mine had died in tragic circumstances two days before, I met him in a garden I don't think I'm mistaken for someone else. So, so what's going on here? I think, you know, and again, you've got in, I think it's in John, uh, in Luke, Jesus appears in the, in the middle of a room. 
So is this a corporeal, you know, physical resurrection or is it something a bit more, uh, a bit more ethereal? I think what we're seeing here are kind of fragments of, uh, of, of elements of a story that is changing and evolving. And, and of course, the corporeality of it is, is very much tied up with this idea of a physical res resurrection of the dead. And in use, using Paul's phrase, Jesus being the first fruits of that. So he, he is a prefigurement of the general resurrection that's coming when the apocalypse finally arrives, which is going to be any day now. Okay, So, so what we're seeing is a, is a development of, of uh, a, a story that's kind of growing. We're seeing these little snapshots and snippets and fragments of it. Um, what happened? Don't know. Uh, I, I'm, I kind of uh, am inclined towards Bart Ehrman's idea that the body was thrown away. Um, they were probably too devastated to, to even sort of think about uh, that too much. Then they started to see visions the way people often do after a traumatic death. That's a pretty common phenomenon. Um, that got interpreted theologically, thanks to all that reading that they're doing of the of the uh, the Old Testament texts, and the idea of of uh, Jesus having risen again and he's coming back began to arise. And we got parallels for this. You know, there was that, that rabbi in uh, in New York back in the in the nineties who was supposedly the Messiah, the Rebbe, and um, he rather inconveniently died. And immediately, you can see it happening in real time. Immediately, there were followers of this rabbi saying, well, he's not really dead. And then when confronted by things like, you know, things like his death certificate and so on, rejecting that and saying, well, he's, he's gone on to heaven and he's coming back very, 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 very soon. So we've seen it happen literally in our lifetimes. And, and there are parallels all through history as well. In fact, the, the motif of um, great, great person or person we consider to be highly significant who dies, but they're not really dead, and they're coming back one day, is, is found all through history. The King Arthur legend, there's a legend about, about Charlemagne in the Middle Ages, a legend about Frederick the Great, uh, there's a legend about Frederick I, uh, there's a legend about um, yeah, Elvis. <laughs> you could actually use Elvis as a, as a direct parallel. There's probably a book there. Um, because I, I, unfortunately, I, I gave it, I think I lost it in a relationship breakup, but I had a book called Elvis Afterlife, which I, I found in a New Age bookshop, which was absolutely hilarious. But it was stories of people's visions and encounters with, with Elvis after his death, complete with uh, a story of, of Elvis reincarnating in, in, a, in a small child and various stories of how Elvis was going to come back and launch a new album and, and, and revolutionise music. It was Jesus with sideburns. You know, it's, it's uh, this is so. So when Christians sort of say there's only one way this story could possibly have come about, that is complete bullshit. And and I do find um, Christian apologism on on the resurrection fascinating because it's not just the um, the Josh McDowell end of Christianity that does this. Uh, you know, N.T. Wright and and you know serious scholars do it as well. I've got it here but i haven't actually read it yet dale c allison's new book on uh, on the resurrection uh, he's a great scholar and the thing i like about him is that you know, he's christian kind of um, but he is very very good in that he goes where the evidence leads in a way in which people like nt wright and and particularly william lane craig don't um, and so I've got a lot of time for Alison. I'm looking forward to reading his book, which, which is getting rave reviews. Apparently, it's it's kind of like the book to read on that on that subject.
So um, get, get, get back to me in a few months and I might be able to answer this question in a bit more detail. That's fantastic. You should definitely try and get Dale on your podcast. He's um he's agreed to come on ours, so I'm sure he'll be he'll be, he'll be well up for chatting. He seems to be um yeah very honed in on this stuff, which is fantastic. Um, Tim, I could press you for the rest of, of our evening, your morning, and this stuff. I'm aware that you've got your Saturday to live, and we've got to get to sleep at some point. But um basically, I kind of wanted just just two final questions, which kind of wrap up quite nicely. The first one is um if you were to encourage someone to go and read one book, you've mentioned books before. There are loads of books behind you. What would be the book that you'd encourage people to go away and read? And secondly, how can people find you? How can they follow your work? Like, how can they interact with your stuff? Okay, um, on the on the book question, I think um Jesus. Uh, just just on on that particular topic, I think Bart Ehrman. I don't agree with Ehrman on absolutely everything, but um, on on pretty much everything. <laughs> uh, and I think Ehrman's book, um, Jesus, uh, uh, the Apocalyptic uh, Prophet of the New Millennium, is probably the best introductory book on the historical Jesus because it, it, it's quite short. Um, it's very approachable. It, there's no jargon. Uh, I don't think it is full of footnotes. It's, it's got references, but it really sort of leads people through how we go about doing this stuff. Um, and, and it's a great, like he's great at, at, at coming up with succinct ways of, under, of people understanding things. I think anyone who, who wants to just get a start on this topic, I'd say that, that particular book would be probably the best, the best jumping off point. Um, on on the on, on broader issues of sort of the history of Christianity, that's a bit more difficult to pin down to one uh, to one particular book. Um, there is a great book on the myths about science, the history of science and religion, called Galileo Goes to Jail, uh, which is edited by Ronald Numbers. Ronald L. Numbers is probably the leading historian on uh, on the history of science today, and that book is is a terrific set of, of very short, um, highly accessible essays debunking a lot of the stuff that is simply assumed in atheist circles. And I, I think that that would probably be another one that, that I would recommend very, very highly. Um, how to follow me? Uh, well, you know, as I said, I'm, I'm becoming a minor publishing industry. So historyforatheist.com is the uh, is the, the blog and the, the website. I, as I mentioned, I try to update it uh, at least once a month. Um, my articles are quite long. Uh, some people find them a bit too long. Bad luck. Uh, I think there's way too much sort of bite-sized, you know, memes and, and snippets and, and too much glib stuff. And I'm trying to counter that. So, you know, my, my blog articles average out at about 7,000 words each. Some of them are up to 15,000. So, you know, get a comfy chair and a cup of coffee and, and, and uh, enjoy. Um, I would also say some people find my tone a little bit acerbic. I don't care. That's just me. Um, I'm a bit of a sarcastic. I'm almost I'm Australian. Come on. I'm a bit of a sarcastic bastard. And I don't suffer fools gladly. So if you're a big fan of people like Richard Carrier and Aron Ra and so on, I have nasty things to say about them because I think they're dickheads. So, you know, if you don't like that, bad luck. Um, on Twitter, uh, Tim O'Neill007 uh, is my Twitter handle. Relatively active on Twitter. 
and then there's the uh, there's links on the website to the uh, to the, the video channel and the, and the podcast. They're pretty embryonic at this stage. There's only, only a few episodes up, but I do intend to uh, to be adding to those at least once a month as well if I can. That's fantastic. I will make sure there are links to all of that in the show notes. So listener, please check the show notes now and yeah, click on those links and, and follow and check out Tim's work. I found, especially found the the YouTube channel, which I know you've just mentioned is um, is very new to be um, really helpful for those people that, that can't that can't read, basically, um, to essentially listen to you read it for them or uh, or have a conversation with somebody who you've written about, like Tom Holland or, or, or many others at this point. So um, yeah, Tim, it's just been such a joy to speak to you this evening. Um, so thank you so much for coming on and sharing with us. It's been fantastic. Thanks, no worries at all. Happy to come back anytime. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. To leave any comments or thoughts, you can head over to YouTube. And to follow us on social media or to see where else we are online, hit the link in the description. Thank you to all our regular givers for making this dream a reality. I'll catch you here at the same time next week. Enjoy the journey. I don't know the the other end of it. Um, I don't know if you've picked up on the Apologia versus Dr. Andrew Loke debate that they're having on the resurrection. Yeah, I've, I've been watching that. And on the whole, I kind of, obviously I agree with, with, uh, with Paul. Um, mm. It's been quite interesting. He, he's, Paul's interesting in that he does manage to change his mind. He, he was, uh, I was happy to see, for example, he's been banging on for a while about how, you know, the, uh, about how the, you know, the criterion of, 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 uh, um, of embarrassment is not used by anyone other than, than uh, New Testament scholars. And that's just not true. It's used by historians all the time. They just don't call it that. But it's a, it's a standard um, measure that historians use, you know, and he's recently been corrected on that and he's recently said, yeah, there are examples of historians using it. So I'm always happy to see someone who's prepared to change their mind. He, he's not brilliant on, on other aspects of history. And uh, I've, been, he's, he's, I've been shown some videos where he's been talking about how Constantine's conversion probably wasn't genuine and wasn't real and so on. That's just crap. Um, so he, he's he's pretty weak on on other parts of history, but he's done his homework on the on the New Testament stuff. Uh, yeah, I've, I've been following that with some with some interest. I haven't watched enough of it. I just don't have enough time. <laughs> but um, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, it, it, it's, it's certainly interesting because he he he's very good at, at at holding their feet to the fire on on some of the more wobbly apologism, which I, I think is uh, useful. I think it's a good thing to do. A lot of people kind of say to me, "Well, why do you just, you know, why do you attack atheists? This is why they they, they think I'm really a Christian." And the answer is because there are plenty of other people who are holding Christians to account for their bad arguments about history and about about the New yeah. Testament. Uh, I don't need to do that, um, but no one on our side is actually holding us to account and saying, "Well, guys, if we're going to preach about checking your sources about." Um, questioning your your assumptions about about um, biases and about uh, paying attention to the experts, then we need to do it as well. Um, and if it makes me enemies, well, I don't give a fuck really. <laughs> <laughs>